Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati. Brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to Pushing the Limits. This week, I have Andy Blow to guest. Now, Andy is the founder of Precision Fuel and Hydration. So this episode is one for the, the athletes out there, the runners, the uh, sports scientists, the people who like to understand a little bit about hydration and electrolytes and fueling uh, and the latest on carb diets versus keto, uh, a theme that we've been talking about on this podcast recently. We're also going to be talking about uh, why sodium is really crucial for performance and why athletes suffer from cr- uh, cramps and all about carbohydrates and working out what's the right sort of hydration plan and uh, carbohydrate plan or keto plan that might be right for you. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Andy Blow. Before we head over to the podcast, um, if you are interested in any of the products that we talked about in this, then head over to precisionfuelandhydration.com. That's precisionfuelandhydration.com. And you can grab their uh, hydration plans there. You can do some testing there. Uh, you can find out about sweat tests, which we talk about in this episode as well. Um, so make sure you check that out, precisionfuelandhydration.com. Um, also, love you to check out, of course, our programs and what we do with Running Hot Coaching. If you're looking to, you know, PB at the next race or you're just starting out in your running journey, you want a holistic run training system that isn't going to burn you out, is going to keep you strong and healthy and give you uh, a good long life as an athlete, then head over to runninghotcoaching.com. And if you want to understand also your genetics, your DNA, how to optimize what you were given from your mum and dad, to what's the right environment, what's the right food, what's the right exercise, how does your brain tick, mood and behavior, lots of aspects to unpick there, how to optimize your health, then head over to Peak Wellness dot com forward slash epigenetics you can also find it on my main website i'm sorry for all the websites i have a number of websites with a number of different uh offerings but you can just head over to lisatarmati.com and hit the work with us button and to be honest they're all there listed out for you so i hope you enjoy this uh, episode now with andy blow and please don't hesitate to reach out if you've got any questions from this episode any past episodes if you've got any ideas for us if you just want to ask us a question then you know reach out to us on email support at lisatarmati.com now over to the show with andy blow Hey everyone, welcome back to Pushing the Limits. It's fantastic to have you with me. Today I have Andy Blow with me. Andy, all the way from Christchurch, but not in New Zealand, in England. Welcome to the show. Love. Thanks, thanks, Lisa. Nice to be here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're connected because you're you're a, a, an endurance athlete. You're a, an expert in the space of electrolytes and uh, nutrition and fueling for athletes. Uh, you're connected with uh, Precision Fuel and Hydration, which a uh, fantastic company that has some some fantastic products that we're going to uh, talk a little bit today. So uh, w- this is an episode for the athletes out there, the endurance athletes, the wannabe athletes, uh, anybody who's interested in fueling. And getting the right combination of fueling going for your training, uh, this is the episode for you. So, Andy, can you, before we get into the sciencey stuff, can you give me a personal background on you and, and what you do and where you come from? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, you said right um, at the start. I'm I'm based in Christchurch, but it is always called the other Christchurch because whenever I say that to people, they think, "Oh, he's in New Zealand." And no, there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a smaller Christchurch on the south coast of the UK, which is now home. That's a picture for those of anyone who's watching. They can see a, a picture of, of it. Yeah, it's a lovely little coastal seaside place on the south coast of England. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not from here. I grew up in the Midlands in the UK and I played a bit of soccer, football, you know, as a lot of kids do and did a bit of cross country and a bit of swimming. And it wasn't until my late teens that I found triathlon and that kind of, although I'd been I'd been pursuing a bit of running and a bit of cycling a little bit competitively, I kind of really got my teeth into triathlon about mm-hmm probably about 25 years ago when um, when it was still quite a relatively small sport. And that's what really got me interested in, in endurance sports and pushing the limits of that. And I, and I trained at university basically full time and went, went full time as an athlete for a while as well. Wow. So I kind of, um, you know, had a, 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 you know, that that's what basically lit my fire for endurance. And it was through that I was studying, I studied sports science at uni as well. So, I kind of brought those two two things together in in what I ended up doing after university, working with athletes and eventually setting up precision fuel and hydration. Brilliant. That sounds brilliant. So um, did you do the longer triathlons or the shorter shorter ones? Or what was your specialty distance? Uh, I did everything. To be everything? With you. I started yeah. with the short stuff and I, I was targeting – probably a little bit it probably wasn't realistic for me to target it but I was sort of gunning for 2004 Athens Olympics was sort Mm -hmm. of the thing that I was really interested in and and sort of training with a lot of the guys that that made it into that squad I was on the periphery of that squad and and so I was a decent athlete but not a real you know world-class athlete and like a lot of people then you migrate you know if you if you're not good at the faster stuff or as good then you migrate to the longer stuff and I did a bit of yeah I did a bit of, um, I did quite a bit of Ironman racing I probably had my best results at um, Ironman or half Ironman so a few I got a podium at half Ironman and top top tens in Ironman races wow. times and then and then after that um, once that had fizzled out for me, I kept my hand in and still keep my hand in a little bit. But I did things like I've been over to New Zealand, actually, and done coast to coast a few years oh, wow. ago. Uh, Ten years ago, actually, I did that in 2012. And um, I've done swim run races and other long stuff. But I kind of I reckon my sweet spot, I'm I'm pretty good when it gets beyond an hour, but it's less than five or six hours. That tends to be my Sweet, sweet spot. spot. Yeah. I've done some of the 10, 12, 15, 20 hour stuff and I can do it, but I, I don't know. My my I seem to be like a middle long endurance athlete for my optimum performance. I'd yeah, say. yeah. We your genetic sly, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to mine, like I was just terribly slow, <laughs> asthmatic, <laughs> no lung capacity, no VO2 max. It was dreadful. So I had to go like, you know, 200 plus K to be any good. <laughs> No, I, I, I was sort of the last one standing. It was the only thing that I could do. I, I, I literally and metaphorically take my hat off to the people that do the 24-hour-plus the thing. I always had this running joke with some people I used to train with that basically it wasn't like a decent event for me. If you, As long as you could have breakfast before it and dinner after it, then <laughs> it was like that was okay. But when you start missing more than one meal... Or sleep. Or missing sleep. Yeah, missing a couple of days sleep. So, and, uh, you know, and it is, um, 
Uh, my take on the whole space now is, you know, I've retired from doing the, the super long stuff anymore. Um, it is that, you know, it's it's fantastic thing to have an experience in because you learn so much about what you're capable of and pushing the limits. And But, um, you know, doing it, you know, in and out all year round and for 25 years and, you know, I did it for a long, long time, 25 years of doing it, you know, off and on, mostly on. Um, it was there's a lot of health issues that came along with that because, you know, it does break you down and it does cause a lot of inflammation and it causes hormonal imbalances and all of that sort of stuff. But you do learn the mental game. I think that's the biggest takeaway that I got got out of it was, was you know, how was the, 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 the mental strength. Um, so if we if we don't get into now a little bit into the nitty gritty on the science, because I love what your your your, your website is pretty brilliant, actually, with all the, the really in-depth articles on um, – Things like cramps and uh, sodium for athletes, and how much is enough hydration and uh, carb fueling, and 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 we 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 talked to briefly before the interview about fat adapted uh, athletes and stuff. So we might get into that a little bit as well. Um, so what what made you actually get into uh, doing precision fuel and hydration? What was uh, the impetus behind that? It's the, it, I think it was the typical thing that. You know, gets most most athletes and it was a personal problem that I had you know I would typically with these races I would race pretty well in cool conditions so all of my best races generally came in cold or cool weather conditions mm-hmm. as soon as it got hot and as soon as I was sweating a lot my performances would fall off a cliff and it was not seemingly all that linked to my fitness level i remember yeah. going into my first ironman which was only in switzerland but it was it's it's ironman switzerland actually is pretty hot most years and it was like high 20s low 30 degrees celsius and my i was in great shape and i think i did 10 and a half hours which you know might not sound like a, a terrible result but i was kind of in training with guys that were racing nine hours yeah. and i was expecting to be like maybe not in the top 10, but kind of maybe worrying the top 10 and to suddenly come 200th or whatever and, and be walking a lot of the marathon. And, and you know, that just kind of kept happening, kept happening. And a friend of mine who was a doctor pointed out to me that he knew I had a high sweat rate. I knew I had a high sweat rate. That was obvious. It just drips off me when I'm training. And um, he said, I think you're losing a lot of salt as well, a lot of sodium. And mm-hmm. so I well, how, what, what do you think? Why, why do you think that? And he said, well, you've got all these salt marks in your eyebrows on your kit when you finish and you, you, you're basically getting cramps and suffering symptoms like hypernatremia, which is mm. low sodium levels. Mm-hmm. So he said to me, look, get down to the hospital. We'll arrange. He arranged for me to do a sweat test, which is with a, a piece of, of equipment that they use for different diagnostic purposes in hospitals. Mm. Um, took a sweat sample sure enough on the scale of like you know zero to ten in the normal population i'm at a 10 for how much salt i lose i lose loads on my my, effectively my sweat is very very salty and what what i learned then and he he looked at we did a very simple spreadsheet he looked at how much fluid i'm taking in a race how much sodium i was consuming and he just said you've just got to turn the dial up hard on the on the sodium and maybe even reduce down the fluid actually that you take in because yep. Yep. I was overcompensating. Yeah, by waterlogged. Mm. Well, exactly that. Yeah, the, the to notes of the waterlogged thing. And with that adjustment, so a lot more salt, a lot more sodium and a lot less, well, a little bit less fluid or a little bit more mindful about how much fluid, it was like that. It was like night and day. It was, it was wow. the difference. So this happened to me quite late on in my career and it 
and it meant that I didn't have many chances to yes. then really kind of press on it but I did enough and I have done enough since to know that this was a critical piece of knowledge that I didn't have as an athlete. Because I've often and, wondered why, the, you know, like I've got a certain athletes that I've worked with or over the years where they just keep getting cramps no matter what. And like you throwing magnesium at them, you're throwing electrolytes at them and they're still doing it. And you're like, what, what is going on in there? So, you know, it'd be interesting to dig into those whole theories, you know, that neuromuscular theory versus the, the, yeah, the sodium yeah. theory and all that sort of stuff. On, on that point, we get approached a lot these days by athletes who will say, they'll say, I've read some of what you've written. And I, you know, cause my, my, one of my big symptoms is cramping in races. I would typically get four or five hours or maybe a little bit more into a long race and then the cramps would start. And then mm-hmm. once they started, it was hard to get rid of them yeah. if you could. And then it's kind of survival from there on in. Very, very frustrating. And, but, but a side effect of taking the additional sodium for me was, that it made a huge difference. And I wouldn't say I eradicated cramps, but I went from being the guy who cramped every time to like it rarely and infrequently hampering my performance. Mm-hmm. And what we find when a lot of people turn to us and say, yeah, I've tried taking electrolytes, I've got cramps. and It's like, okay, well, what dosage have you tried and with what amount of fluid? Because you, I was taking electrolytes and I assumed very naively you know, back when I was a youngster racing that, electrolytes were like some kind of magic element like pixie dust that you just you just needed to take some there wasn't i didn't even though i was a sports scientist the dose response relationship hadn't made it into my head with regards to that particular thing so only when dr my friend dr jutley said to me you know you need to be taking like five or six or eight times more than you're taking there is a wow. you were just like not taking anywhere. I was taking, for instance, like a couple of hundred milligrams of sodium per hour in a race, and it turns out in a hot race I needed well over a thousand milligrams per wow. hour. Wow! So these sweet tests that you guys do are just absolutely crucial, and I've never even heard of that. You know, like to be honest, I've yeah. never never come across that. Like you know, you sort of intuitively know like when you're doing ultras say in the desert you you see who's really crusty <laughs> like really yeah. who's got the real like salt crust and you think usually the guys are you know sweating a little bit more and and um but i didn't realize it was such a big genetic factor or, or whatever that is the cause of it there, it, is, it is probably genetic yeah. it's different when we test and retest people people's number doesn't tend to move around much yeah. for them it's very stable. So, you know, it's essentially how your sweat bond functions because your sweat is drawn from your blood plasma. Mm. We know that your blood plasma is homeostatically controlled and it's very, very salty. So just to, to put some numbers in context, in your blood, you've usually got about 3,600 milligrams of sodium per litre. And in sweat, you can lose anywhere between 200 milligrams per litre and 2,000 milligrams per litre. Jeez, so, that's a big difference. Yeah, it's a <laughs> tenfold difference which is why there's so much controversy about this subject because you can talk to like five different people and if it's certainly if it's based on their personal experience you can get five different opinions and what it's meant is and and people love a bit of i mean you'll know this from training and coaching and stuff people love simple one size fits all like soundbite advice like oh yeah with with electrolytes you need to do this with fluid you need to do this and the reality is there's a little bit more or a lot more nuance in it 
but yes, with that goes over a lot of people's heads. Yeah. Yep. And, and it, that and personalization it, with this type of thing is just gold. So that's great that you have that, this, that ability to do that now. Like that's, that's not been around, not in the, the general population that they could go and get a sweat test and find out how salty are they, you know? Well, that's, that's what precision fuel and hydration started out as. It was me sweat testing people, you wow. know, simple as that. And then the natural progression is people start asking you, what should I be drinking or what should I be taking? And so we used to buy in different electrolyte supplements, put a spreadsheet mm. together, work out. This one's got 500 milligrams a litre. This one's got 300 milligrams a litre. And then trying to say to you, OK, Lisa, we've got your sweat test results. Your, your sweat's like this. These are the type of events you do in these conditions. Mm. We this product to be a good fit for you but then that product might not be available in new zealand or it might not be available it might you might have to mix it twice as strong as it's supposed to be or whatever so that's how the company was born because we just made different strength electrolyte drinks so we made a a, a, like making t-shirts instead of one like everyone makes a medium we make a small medium large and extra large which is like a weak moderate strong and super strong electrolyte drink and that's what what goes off the line Right. What what about the how um you know the issues with gut and you know when when I would take and and I must admit so I've I've used different lots of different electrolyte products over the years and I found the tablets to be better for me than the than the drinks because I always have trouble keeping the drinks and I stopped liking the taste and then I wouldn't drink it and you know so I, I found dosing with tablets just a lot easier and I you know mostly ran really hot deserts um, so. And I didn't have a huge problem with cramping, to be honest. So I didn't, I don't have, ha- haven't had that experience that you've had. Um, as long as I was taking something, I was pretty, you know, good to go. Um, what about the gut issues that you get with a lot of electrolyte drinks? And then when we're talking about electrolytes, we're not just talking about sodium alone we're talking about the potassium and i'd you know love to share a story about potassium shortly but um there is a a combination of things in there and then we're also told you know too much salt is bad for you you know (laughs) lower your salt intake and and so on and uh why is that not you know the case for for at least for athletes doing this type of thing yeah, so a couple of questions there, but yeah, <laughs> the gut issue. Questions. Yeah, the gut issue. And then- yeah, starting with the gut issue. So I would say it's often just a simple case of, not a simple case, but it's a common case of mismatch. You know, you're the Lisa's um, um, overload of sodium might be Andy's appropriate amount. And if I gave you my drink, the chances are like I'm on one extreme and I know very little about your physiology other than what you've just told me. But it sounds to me like it's not screening out that you're someone who's got really heavy sodium losses because you would probably have found out the hard way over the years, which is what happens with a lot of athletes. My my inference there is that you're taking a if you're taking a strong electrolyte replacement, that might just be too strong for you you know and that is going to not whereas when you're when my body is crying out for sodium salt replacement and fluid i can drink and tolerate huge amounts of very very salty fluid because i'm obviously losing it and the body is smart the body like 
knows how to and it wants to maintain homeostasis mm-hmm. we just did a case study with a, a guy we've got a load of good case studies on our website for different levels of intake for athletes we just did a very detailed one with a guy in australia who did ironman cairns recently mm-hmm. very he's failed to finish loads of ironman races because he's got height like me high sweat rate high salt loss we gave him probably the most ridiculously dialed up prescription of fluid and salt we've ever given anyone in a recent case and said not sure if this is going to work but kind of you've tried everything else this this feels like based on your numbers this is the way to go and so he did he did the race absolutely smashed it crushed it drinking over over a liter an hour of fluid with over 2000 milligrams of sodium in it gosh and that would just make, I, I guarantee you, if I gave that to nine out of 10 people, that would make them nauseous and vomit. Yeah, yeah. But for him, it was the absolute opposite. It was absolutely what his body was crying out for. So yeah. I th- that that kind of, for me, is is the whole point of our existence early on. In, to answer your first question, it's like getting that dose response, that getting that dose correct for an individual. And if yeah. you fall too far outside of what the appropriate dose is, it causes generally things like gi distress or mm. that's the body's way of telling you that this is not this is right. gold you know this is gold that personalization and being able to work that stuff out because till now we're sort of like yeah x amount per hour per the temperature that was about it you know and the, your body size and so it was a bit of a you know yeah that's about right <laughs> approach and yeah. then and then you know and then when you've worked so hard for a bloody races and you know when you when you fail or when you don't perform like you know you can perform it's bloody devastating um yeah. so this is this is amazing that you can now get that really precision and 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 do you have sweat test centers all over the place how does that work with you with you yeah. guys yeah, we so we are based in the UK. We have a load of sweat tens, sweat test centres up and down the UK. We've got them across America now. We've got a few in Australia. We've got a few in New Zealand, a um, few in continental Europe, Canada. So not hundreds and hundreds, but like probably close to 100 now. Wow, that's amazing. So that's that's one of, if people want are interested in that, like hit the website, look for a test centre. It's in the footer of our website they can find a local place if they if you if you're struggling we've got an email address which is open all the time it's just hello at precisionhydration.com you can basically hit us up and we'll try and introduce you to someone locally who can do a sweat test but if you can't do any of that the next best thing is we've got a free online version of the test so in mm-hmm. the head of our website you can do the free online hydration test and and it just kind of asks you a load of leading questions, like the kind of things I would ask you if I was trying to figure out if you've got yeah, high. It's things like, do you see sweat stains on your salt stains on your clothes? Do you get muscle cramps? Um, do you ever feel, you know, do you ever underperforming the heat? And we've got an algorithm that at least kind of attempts to point you in the right direction. Because as you as you've said already, this kind of like thumbs yeah. up approach is, is <laughs> Well, well this works for me it should work for you yeah. you know which is all you have as a coach if you don't have such tools you know yeah you, you have and some tables and- coaches what we find with coaches and people advising athletes is that they've only got like their own experience to fall back on plus mm. the experience of athletes they've worked with now if you imagine the distribution of sweat loss for example it's it's kind of a sweat and sodium loss it's from bell-shaped curve so most a lot of people fall into the middle i'm an extreme out there i'm on one side some people are extreme on the other but you know like 60 percent are going to be in the middle of that distribution or something mm. so 
you're a coach, there's a good chance you've only worked with a, a high proportion of people who fall into that middle bracket. So it's really tricky if you then come across an, a sort of a, an outlier and it's and not you're there. scratching your head like why are they yeah. why are they having trouble yeah and what we find is that there's this real trend that like you'll find and there's some well-known coaches out there if they're on the lower end of the spectrum themselves for sweat and sodium loss it's never been an issue for them yeah and they, like find, me. It yeah. Really, they find it really difficult to wrap their head around the idea that it might be difficult for other people whereas like at first i'm the first to put my own hand up and admit and say when I first found out about this, I thought I'd solved the problem for everyone because I was taking a high dose and I was just like, high dose is the way to go. <laughs> but, but you learn over time that actually that, that more individualized approach is, is, is the way to go. So I would say, you know, we, a, a New Zealand athlete that we work quite closely with is Dougal Allen, who you might, you might know and have heard of, but Dougal's obviously yep. won coast to coast on a number of occasions, very good Ironman athlete. And he found us like organically over the years because he is quite a heavy sweater and loses a lot of salt. Wow. And it wasn't until he put two and two together with what we were recommending that he started using our products and we now uh, uh, to be totally transparent Dougal is now a sponsored athlete for us but it never started like that he was he was buying the products through our website and it was only because yep. one of the guys that works was noticed that and said Dougal's yep, a great athlete why is he buying our stuff so and now <laughs> he's coaching a lot of people and talking to people and he he preaches the individualization message because he gets you know what he, in everything in medicine, it should be personalized or in health, you know, everything. We have the ability now to personalize anything because my, yeah. my pet space is genetics and epigenetics and stuff. And so, you know, like w this one size fits all approach never made sense from the beginning. And we often didn't have the nuance that we may have now with the knowledge with gen genetics and so on. Um, and it'd be interesting to find out what genes are actually at play and why, why somebody sweats more than others, but that's probably beyond today's conversation. But I wanted to share a little bit of a story with you. Um, so years ago when I was in um, Alaska and I was doing <coughs> kayaking down the Yukon or canoeing down the Yukon, sorry, and trekking and doing all that sort of stuff. And I'd been pushing my body for weeks and poor nutrition and so on. And I started having these cramps and um i just ignored it you know carried on and then one day we came off a mountain and i was in a library and it was freezing cold and been you know not hydrating right not not doing anything right especially back then and all of a sudden my whole body went into a cramp and luckily i was in a library and so i had what was called a tetany seizure and this is where the whole body cramps like your face muscles your, your heart everything and you you very often die you know um this so luckily i was like two minutes from the hospital when this happened and there was an ambulance person in the library and they saved my life it got me to the hospital but my my potassium level was uh at 1.4 and that was like you know not they'd never seen that in a living person before yeah, and yeah. um so so potassium is another really key thing in in hydration i had another example uh with a with a, a friend of mine we were racing and uh we're actually doing a documentary called run the planet um in the outback of australia it was a pilot for a tv series we were trying to get off the ground and we did the pilot we didn't get the tv series but he was taking uh ones that were just just sodium like they didn't have a lot of potassium in it. and he ended up with the same problem at 120 k's in in 40 degree heat with a tetany seizure 
um, and was also lucky to survive that one. So this can be deadly when you get it wrong, especially when you're pushing yeah. ultra distances in really hot climates. Um, but in both of those cases, it was a potassium thing as well. Have you come across that? And does your does do your do your um, hydration uh, electrolytes have potassium in them as well? Yeah. So so, but I've not personally come across that that scenario i've read about it but i've not come across it i've not got personal yeah. first time experience but i can imagine yeah i have actually had like full body cramps myself yeah like right at the end of an ironman race or something and they've tended to i've been admitted to a medical tent but they've tended to resolve over the next few hours rather than needing like really emergency intervention but the, the thing about um, body fluid and electrolytes is that they're they are the absolute levels of them are relative are important but what's even more important is the re relationship between the ratios between them because yep. sodium is the predominant electrolyte in your extracellular fluid yep. and potassium is the predominant electrolyte in your intracellular fluid mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and when you get those two seriously out of whack that can cause problems no matter if you've got the the right level of one yeah. or the yep. other and I think what so typically what happens with 90 odd percent of athletes that have electrolyte disturbance is it's a sodium imbalance issue because extracellular fluid is very sodium rich. It doesn't have a lot of potassium in it. And so it's rare that you can in a short, short endurance race that you can sweat out enough to lose a decent amount of potassium. If you're eating any semblance of real foods, you're probably going to put some potassium back in and you're going to stay within the levels but when you go really really long um, and particularly like say with your friend there he might have been taking a vast amount of sodium but no potassium yeah that causes fluid shifts in the body which mean that your sodium and potassium balance gets out of whack and as you've pointed out like potassium imbalance is really detrimental deadly. yes deadly. stop your heart yeah. I mean, when I, my friend who I mentioned at the beginning, Dr. Jutley, who identified this problem with me, he's a heart surgeon. And I was lucky enough years ago to be invited into theatre to watch him do a heart operation. And what they do is they infuse potassium into yeah. the circulatory system to stop the heart. Yeah. So you know that potassium, that's why you can't buy over the counter very easily potassium supplements. Yeah, you have to be careful with it. Yeah. Be really careful. So what we do with our supplements, for example, is there's not a great rationale for saying that potassium is a critical ingredient of a sports drink for most people, but we put a basic amount in there, an amount that's kind of similar to what you might lose in the average person's sweat as a kind of fallback, just as a top up, just to make sure there's some kind of relationship between the two so you are putting a little bit back in we major on the story around sodium because acutely that's the one that you're likely to get low on as an athlete but what what i think you're highlighting there especially is that there's a lot that we don't that's not well understood about yeah. the physiology of going for ultra endurance days and days and days when you can definitely become depleted or get imbalanced across any of your electrolytes exactly and, and and you know like the um potassium being on the inside of the cell so what happened in, in my case from my basic understanding of it is that it was squeezing all the fluid out into the extracellular space and that's why i was cramping like that and that's you know yeah it leads to heart attack basically and death pretty 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 quickly if you're not if you're not able to get help um and and 
keeping that balance. And then there's also magnesium in the mix too. And magnesium's been spoken about for years for the cramping thing. What's your take then on the magnesium part of that, that equation as well? Yeah, if you, re- if you read the typical sports science literature on that, magnesium is, yeah, the role of magnesium is minimised because it's not, again, you don't lose vast amounts in your sweat. It's very, very small amounts of milligrams of magnesium, like single digits often that you right. lose in your sweat compared with hundreds of milligrams of sodium, for example. Mm. But there are enough cases of people who anecdotally get cramps and take magnesium supplements and it helps them to sort of, at least make you ba- vaguely sit up and take notice. And I, mm. I, and I guess the, the likely scenario there is possibly something to do with more long-term magnesium depletion, either a yes. deficient a diet that's deficient in magnesium or a lack of, or a malabsorption of magnesium or, you know, something that's causing that. I would say it's unlikely that people would sweat enough and it would be acutely a magnesium deficit in sweat. But of course, layered on top of other things, that could be, beneficial that that could be influential and what what we always recommend is like we have the very strongest electrolyte supplement we do is called ph 1000 you can get it in a tablet or you can get it in a packet which you mix in water and you you drink that it's got like three times as much sodium and a basic amount of magnesium calcium potassium in there and if you drink that before exercise and during exercise that normally makes you cramp and makes those cramps go away then that is essentially the acid test and that that for most combo that high dose it tends to it tends to we we find when we do this we do this annual cramping survey to our database we find that that intervention is effective about seven or eight out of ten cases there are and i'm sure you've come across them there's always a handful of cases that don't seem to respond to electrolyte imbalance and that's why looking at for different theories yeah neuromuscular theories and Mm. and that sort of thing but i would say we we have a we have a skewed view of the world as endurance athletes because most of the cramping that we come up against is in endurance sport yeah and i would say at least the majority if not a vast majority of that cramping can be alleviated with the right electrolyte with the right sodium supplementation Mm. but it's 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 so difficult to get like hard, hard data on it that most of the time we recommend people. We have a protocol that we recommend to people, which in the blog that you've mentioned on our website is quite well documented. It is what brilliant. Yeah. And then, and then people can try that. And I would say we have some of the most unbelievably, um, like the unbelievably warm and friendly and thankful emails that we get from people about people who've cramped for 10, 15 years doing whatever sport. And then they read that and they try it. And then all of a sudden they get on top of their cramping issues. And it, oh. it, is, it, it is just a game changer. Because I know that for me, I'd have pretty much paid any amount of money to, <laughs> to someone to, to take those those cramps. So I was having, I remember back in the day, I was having acupuncture and sports massage and, I was trying all sorts of things, and probably what I needed was a ten dollar sodium. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so and there's so much controversy in this whole thing, like over the years, you know, as a, you know, starting because my career started back in the dark ages, and I remember the first desert that I trekked across, and we got salt tablets, and it was like, oh, you shouldn't have salt tablets; you're gonna die from you know too much sodium, and it was like. You know, we got them and we needed them and we needed more than that. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and now there's a lot, you know, like the magnesium 
like a lot of people are deficient in magnesium from a long-term perspective and you're looking at nutrition levels in the general population, magnesium is one of those things that I think a lot of people should be supplementing with and there's different types of magnesium. And, you know, um, just as an anecdotal um, story, I was helping a lady who was having massive cramping issues, like, but and she was severely overweight and uh, not an athlete, um, but someone was really strange. She was in hospital for three weeks and they were doing all sorts of tests on her and they couldn't find anything to what was going on. And I said to her, you know, apart from, you know, dietary changes and stuff, uh, can you add in some magnesium? <laughs> can you put in some magnesium into the mix? She put in the magnesium out of hospital the next day, you know, first time they had a night without cramps and she was able to get home and, you know, go from there. Um, and sometimes this is something as simple as somebody's never looked at that. You know, your electrolytes are absolutely crucial. You know, in this whole balance and keeping the body in that homeostatic state uh, is just really, really important. And and I think what we're highlighting from this conversation is there is nuance to this argument, like there should be with all medical things, by the way. It should be always nuanced. How does it fit to you, your specific situation, what your goals are, what your history is, what your genetics are, and um, being able to tailor it to that. So you've got your electrolyte tablets. You've got your electrolyte powders as well. Um, what other things do you have in the mix? So you've also got the carb fueling, uh, and this is a really another really, um, you know, the hot debates all around the world about fat adaptive athletes and keto diet and, and then other athletes who, you know, you have to have so many carbs per hour and here's the, the perfect fueling plan. And, I'm, I, you know, I gather you and I have come from, a, well, in our, in our day and age, it was just carbs, eat more carbs. Yep. <laughs> and now there is some really interesting research around keto diets and fat adaptation. But if you're a keto, if you're a carb-based athlete and you aren't fully keto adapted, uh, which is most of the people, um, what are you recommending in that case, you know, for, for yeah. carb fueling? No, it's a good, you made loads of really good points there again. And I reckon, you know, so back in the 80s, 90s, it was just carbs, carbs, carbs. You know, it was mm. all about carb loading. It was off the back of a lot of the work in Sweden where they did muscle biopsies and looked at glycogen levels and found that basically if you carb loaded before endurance events, lo and behold, you went faster for longer because you had more fuel. And that sort of persisted to the point where all of the macronutrients were like fat in the 90s was demonized yeah. massively and you couldn't have fat. I remember like... Yeah. Um, you used to spray like spray oil into your frying pan instead of pouring <laughs> it in you know vegetable oils too oh terrible yeah. i mean i don't because we because as an endurance athlete you weren't trying to gain muscle i don't think we even worried about eating protein you know protein <laughs> yeah. and it was expensive if you were a student so yeah. i just used pasta and <laughs> It's a wonder you had a great performance at all, really, well, if you think back at exactly. it. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you sort of then we've gone then we've gone a lot harder in the in the early and mid two thousands into you know, the keto and the the fat adapted thing and it's all gone through. But the pendulum feels like it's swinging back a little bit in terms of there's been a relative amount of pushback about fat adaptation because the science still basically for the vast majority of endurance athletes and if we stick let's stick below say you know Ironman and kind of the one day stuff if you're doing the event in a day then as, if you're fit you're generally like when I used to do an Ironman I would be at a heart rate of 160 beats a minute and like 
that's pretty you know it's like hard endurance work so you mm. are burning predominantly yeah. you are burning predominantly carbohydrate yeah. if you want to go and we know from looking at what Tour de France cyclists eat and all that sort of thing there are no fat adapted Tour de France riders who are eating you know they're not eating bacon on the way around they have energy gels for loads of carbs these guys are actually smashing 90 100 120 grams of carbohydrate an hour at the peak of when they're working really really hard because the more carbohydrate you can oxidize the more quickly the lower the oxygen cost of doing exercise and the faster you can go. So this is why marathon runners are chugging down concentrated carbohydrate drinks where they didn't used to because it stops you from hitting the wall and it, it allows you to run faster. So I'm still, of, I'm very much in the camp and I don't think it's a stretch to say that the vast majority of the scientific evidence and the evidence of working with elite athletes shows that, if you want to go fast doing endurance events, even for multiple hours, you, carbohydrate is your friend and you kind of need to work on ways to maximize intake and absorption. So with, with fast moving athletes, our minimum carbohydrate recommendations per hour, starting around the 60 gram per hour range and go up to the 90 gram per hour. And then on a case by case basis, we might even recommend that people go beyond that for periods you know to 100 120 grams if you get different people who can different tolerate yeah, tolerate the different yeah because it's always like to travel too is the uptake of it you know yes. can you and digest it you know and that's pretty individual and there's maybe a bit of a link between you know like training and being training you got to uptake and otherwise just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out everything on patron.lisatamati.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot lisatamati.com. We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month, New Zealand, or $15 a month if you really want to support us. So we, we are grateful if you do. There are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us. Everything from workbooks for all the podcasts, the strength guide for runners, uh, the power to vote on future episodes, uh, webinars that we're going to be holding, all of my documentaries, and much, much more. So check out all the details, patron.lisatamati.com, and thanks very much for joining us. So I would say, you know, if I've got a hat on in this argument, it's probably leaning towards not not to the exclusion of fat burning and fat adaptation, but I'm more of a I'm, – I'm in the camp yep. – and by the way, this is this is based more as the scientific evidence for me backs up what I actually see on a day to day basis of working with elite athletes, because we work with a load of elite athletes and we analyze the race intakes. And they're on our website. If people want to read them as case studies with loads and loads of elite athletes doing really well in endurance events. Very few of them. I don't I think there's hardly any case studies and we don't cherry pick them, but they're just not taking less than 50 or 60 grams of carbs per hour. Long yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. that's that's like standard. And when you think about that, even for a 
in a standard energy gel, that's like two, two and a half energy gels per hour, which you say that to a lot of people are like, wow, that's a lot. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, it is, but there's a reason these people, elite sport is a proving ground for stuff that works. People don't do things for very long that don't work and they double down and continue to do things that, that do work. And so when you see loads of elite athletes doing that, you have to sit up and take notice. And so like coming full circle with the fat adapted argument it's like well we know that any amount of endurance training helps your body to become more efficient at burning fat because you rev up all the metabolic and cellular machinery the mitochondria more flexibility that, yeah between the carb and the fat yep because 15 20 hours of training a week as a lot of serious endurance athletes would do you're going to spend an amount of time in a glycogen depleted state where fuel is limited resource in the body there's nobody and i mean absolutely nobody carbs up before and during every single session you you naturally go out and do some of your training a little bit depleted and that teaches your body to to be pretty good at burning fat so you get this decent flexibility where you can tap into one or the other the difference is that when you're burning fat predominantly you're going at a slower pace which which is fine for lots of your training but it ain't going to help it's not going to help you racing you know you're racing where you get the fitness adaptations for racing is pushing the end yeah look it's a really um interesting um debate and i'm I'm sort of half on the fence i've had a couple of uh, professor tim noakes on the show recently who's you know gone and and who used to be like in the carb side of the equation and he was you know he's mr mr running you know he's written the book law of running and all of that uh and 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 now more on the fat adapted uh side of the argument i've had professor schofield grant schofield who's written what the fat and works with a lot of elite athletes who are on the complete fat adapted scale and i haven't got a horse in either race to be fair, I've been a carb adapted athlete or, you know, carb only athlete throughout my active career and now dabbling around and playing with keto. And I think keto diets definitely have their space and definitely in the therapeutic space if you've got, you know, diabetes or cancers or things like that. Absolutely. You know, or Alzheimer's or things like that. Um, when we're talking about the speed and you know, actually racing at high levels, it would yeah, it, it makes sense to me that there's, me, there's a more of a need for carbs in the mix there. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I, th- I think, you know, like, again, this personalization is really important. I think this is something for people to play around with and test out. I'd love to now, like looking back at some of the, the races that I did at altitude or something, being a, if I'd been a fat adapted athlete, what could I have done and achieved? But we also have to think that I'm an ultramarathon runner. I'm running at a low intensity for long, long periods of time. So, you know, days at a time sometimes, as opposed to an Ironman athlete who are, you know, smashing it out in eight to 12 hours, whatever, 15 hours, something like that, um, over a one-day period. And it's a different beast in a way because, again, you've got a whole lot of other things like, you know, how, you know, nutrition levels are, are really different the requirements are really different so i think you know comparing apples with apples in other words is is, is also an important thing but i think it is an, a, an interesting space to keep watching and how this does evolve um and you know there are some 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 good fat adapted you know ironman athletes out there as well uh, who swear by it and who swear that they're they're you know uh, keto production is making them a much better athlete and going much faster and so on. So it's a space to watch. And I think there's a genetic component again 
as to how you work on that and how that fits for you and your lifestyle. And then there's also the whole thing. I think if you're going to be a fat adapted athlete, you have to do it properly and you have to do it over weeks prior. You know, you yeah. can't go like three days keto before the race. <laughs> it's not going to work. You need to be a full, fully adapted and then, you know, do that. And um, it, it'll be an interesting space to watch, I think. I personally have always tried to steer clear of gels Gels for me in my stomach have always made me vomit and, and caused digestive upsets, and I've never been a big fan of, of gels. Now, having said that, I don't know what's in your gels and the gels now uh, may be different to what the gels I was having 10, 12, 15 years ago, but that was my experience of that, that intensive sh- shot of carbohydrates was always just too much, and I'd always end up throwing it out, and I've seen quite a lot of people run into those sorts of problems before. What do you have in your gels, and are they a little bit different than just straight? What are they? What is, what's in there? Yeah, so the gels that we make are very, very simple. It's multidextrin-based with some fructose as well, two-to-one glucose-fructose ratio because there's some reasonable evidence to suggest that helps transport across the gut more quickly. Mm -hmm. Our gels are a true gel. So where I think a lot of gels make people sick because they're basically a syrup. They're very, very – they're they're like a sport (laughs) When you ours is much more like a jelly or a jam. It's like set with pectin, so it's a little bit more solid. It has absolutely no flavour. It has absolutely no colour. It has no no electrolytes. It is it's, it's got a very very short ingredients list, uh, which is carbs and pectin and citric acid to set it, and that is fundamentally it. And we are almost it's it's becoming a running joke in our office that we're going to name it like the gel for people who hate gels because I would love to (laughs) actually just to try it because the the number one sort of feedback we're getting from people is that well I've tried your hydration and I don't like gels but I really like this one and yeah uh, I think I think they have so in in that respect I think if you do go back 10 or 15 years a lot of the market hasn't changed you know a lot of the big companies banging out the same gels they once were we've tried to recognize that being kind on the stomach and palatability is really important for people and also for ours the other big feature is that they're 30 grams of carbohydrate because all these recommendations come in at like 30 60 90 120 grams yet most of the gels on the market are 22 or 26 or whatever and it it becomes like a mental arithmetic test so we've we've tried to simplify it but like but just just rewinding and going back into your chat then about the, the fat adapted i think mm. i think i lo- i'm inclined to agree with you in in principle in that there's definitely i love this concept with loads of things about spectrums like sweat sodium which we've talked about is a spectrum from at the lower end you've got people that lose very little sweat sodium and they have no problems with electrolyte replacement because as long as they're taking in something their losses mm. are so small yeah they're on the other end, you've got me and other people like me who lose tons of sodium and we have to aggressively supplement in order to meet those needs. And it, it, obviously in between those two, there is a grey sliding scale of like these people probably don't need a lot, but then they might benefit from some. These people start to need a bit more. And at some point, there's like a critical point at which you really need to supplement. But it's really hard to define what that is. But yeah. we just know that. That's the nature of it. It's a spectrum. With fat adaptation and carbohydrates, I would say there are people, there probably are some people out there who, I don't think there's anyone who can race at their best in a short, fast endurance event purely on fat because the laws of 
physics and physiology dictate that you can liberate more energy from carbs faster faster yeah so but when you maybe there's a point and maybe there's a crossover point let's say it's getting out towards the 12 15 20 hour stuff where i would probably still lean on using a lot of carbohydrate in those events but based on my past experience and my general diet because it's a fairly norm normal diet i don't i've periodized my carbohydrate intake a little bit more as i've understood it but generally i eat what i would say is just a, a, a mixed macros diet there are definitely people that i've seen who seem to be able to and, and your point about training it is key you need to yeah. give it some time you need to live the low the low carb life yeah, yeah see how you feel once you've adapted see how you perform i've got an example of that in um as a, a direct a really good mate of mine who i've grown up doing sport with for years recently got um diagnosed as a, a type 2 diabetic and um so he's had to like relearn the way to eat completely yeah. in the last, last 12 months because he he's just had to go low carb essentially yeah. yep. and he still exercises and all the rest of it and a big side effect is naturally his diet's gone more heavy on protein and fat He's saying to me that he goes out and bike rides now for like two, three hours, virtually just like, I just don't need to eat when I'm out and I don't really eat. But, but this is the big, the big thing. He's like going up hills and stuff like that. He just hasn't got top end anymore. You know, he can, he can keep going for hours. And so if you, if you are doing something, which is going to like mean you've got to keep going for hours and hours and you, Ultras, you yep. the really long stuff. If, if you're also genetically and mentally and, and all the rest predisposed to kind of like minimalizing carbohydrate and increasing fat, then essentially why not, why not pursue trying that as a, mm. as a, as giving because at that point at some point you get a competitive advantage by needing to eat less because you can carry less you can stop less and you bonk less you know you're not going to hit the wall yeah you're going to hit the wall so i can i can buy that i'm not Mm. i'm not anti it Mm. the caveat to all of that though i would say is like and okay we may be skewed in the amount of people we know but how many people do we know who that is their predominant thing that they do like most endurance athletes spend a lot of their time kicking around the one two three hour training sessions and the short short races marathons whatever and in in all of that i think that if, if i'm putting my neck on the block i would say that the tim noakes and people like even though in in the past i've got tons of respect for what he's done early in his career there's this like move towards extremism on the internet where you listen to stuff on the internet or read stuff. It feels like every other athlete is doing keto and fat adapted. But then you venture, then I venture out into the real world of athletes. And where are all these people? You know, they've got big voices on the internet, but there's not, it's, it's almost like there's a lot of noise, but how many people are really doing it day to day? And that was, you, you might've come across um, Jason Coop, who's a, a, a ultra running mm-hmm. He's, he's got a great yeah, podcast yep. in the US and Jason's a very yes, well respected yep. um, ultra running coach. He's written the book on ultra running and mm. said this exactly to me the other day when we were exchanging emails. He was like, look, Andy, social media, all the rest of it, it makes it feel like keto and fat adapted is is kind of bigger than it is because it's huge in metabolic health and it's huge in... Yeah, and it does have a place in there, I do, I do believe. Yeah. It's got a massive, it's got a massive yeah. place in, yeah. in all of that. But it's kind of like, okay, well, 
there's sport like any walk of life there's a lot of these hype cycles that happen and I guess my feeling on it is is that maybe we're in a little bit more where the fat adapted thing is like the latest bandwagon and I'm not accusing everyone of like immediately jumping on that bandwagon but there is always an element of that helps to crank the handle on it make it feel like it's bigger than what it is and what I'm saying is from where I'm sitting kind of carbs have been terminally unfashionable maybe they're coming back a little bit but they're still they're still at the coalface what a lot of athletes are chomping with 90 percent of the athletes that are actually on the ground yeah yeah i think you'd be right there and you know what i like i I like this that we have this open conversation and we can throw ideas out there and we can um you, you know have have those intellectual debates without killing each other, like, I'm, I'm the fat adapter space, and that's it, you know, and I'm in the, you know, like, well, let's try it, and maybe for you this is the thing, and then maybe next year a study will come out that will make me think otherwise, you know. Um, there's uh, there's all sorts of, of, of nuance to this conversation, which is what I love, you know, and I, and I, and I love when we have competing scientists actually go and head-to-head on things because then we can take it from our own uh, sorry, Mum's doing the uh, dishes in the background. <laughs> <laughs> She's just making a hell of a noise. Sorry, everyone. Um, it, it's uh, you know, it, it's important that we have these ongoing conversations because science is an evolving thing. We are not there. We are not. We don't have all the information yet, and there is. Uh, certain people that will benefit from this, and certain benefit the benefit from that, and then and that and they can both both be right. Um, and I think in the general population, we have an excess of carbs. You know, like I'm not talking about the endurance athletes now. And from a therapeutics perspective, from a cancer perspective, I do sit more in the camp of keto is probably the better way to go or keto-ish, you know, where you're just cutting out, cutting down on the carbs, cutting out the vegetable oils. I think we probably agree on the, the shitty oils that what they do in the body. Um and I think this is why it's important to have these conversations and to keep having them because we are getting more and more data. But I do think that, yeah, if if I go for a, a you know a ten hour run today, which I won't be by the way, but if I did, um, I'd be needing my carbs. You know, I'd be needing them because I'm not fully fat adapted. And if I was, I don't know if I would still be needing some. I think I'd still need some in the mix. I, th- I think I, where I'd also like lean back towards the sort of the middle ground here and certainly agreeing with you more is that, you know, from in my day-to-day existence now, I probably cycle my carbohydrate eating a lot more around my yeah. activity levels because I don't train anywhere near as much as I used to. So I fully see the value in like, I will not sit down and have a predominant, in fact, quite often my evening meals will have very little carbo- yeah. carbohydrate instead Brilliant. of being traditional like meat, veg and big serving of carbohydrate which is what i'd have eaten as an athlete Mm, mm. now i'll have a lot of vegetables and some protein and often minimal to no carbohydrates until my kids are um, five and eight so um having like no bread in the house is not an option they, they, (laughs) before the kids came along my wife and i found that we were buying bread and it was going stale and going off because we just were both naturally we'd shifted away from that kind of and the other the other thing yeah. which I the other thing which I'm leaning into quite a lot is is not my wife is big into intermittent fasting. Brilliant, so yeah. She's yeah. and my wife is a biochemist, she's a scientist with a PhD wow. in 
researcher so she's she's someone who reads about this stuff and does it from a, a quite scientifically based angle and you know for me one of the things I've taken for that is I don't do the, I don't follow the same regime as her necessarily but I will I find it relatively easy to skip breakfast and mm. have narrow the window of eating yes. we, yep. we eat with the children quite often so I'll eat in the evening at 5 30 and then I can be done eating by 6 p.m and then I may not eat until 11 or 12 o'clock the next day. Yeah, so my eating is compressed down on that. That changes, by the way, if I'm training really hard, because I yep. need, I just need more calories and I just have to eat breakfast, but I've found it way easier these days to kind of take, I'm a bit take it or leave it with breakfast and, and narrowing that window of eating. And I think, although that's not the same as fat adaptation, effectively what you are doing. Oh, is you yeah. A, you're firing up the same cellular yeah. machine the autophagy and the... yeah by that having that period of fasting and i just know is I'm, I'm now in my 40s and i feel really wow I feel way better than that you know i used yeah. to i used to I, I used to be i don't know have you if you have the same brand in new zealand but i used to be like four weetabix for breakfast <laughs> you know that was kind of well you told that's what's healthy isn't it you know like yeah. Grains, grains, grains. <laughs> my my mum is like really health conscious person, but she, I think, still finds it. She finds it a little bit. Um, she can't get her head around that not eat. You know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You can't miss breakfast. No, <laughs> it's not true. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, again, it's, there's a whole lot of nuance to this discussion. But I, I, I think intermittent fasting is the easiest way for most people to get this autophagy going. You know, uh, we, we, uh, I've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about you know um, senescent cells and and trying to lower the senescent load in the body and senolytic activators, and these are all things that you know, senescent cells, as we get older, we get more of these senescent cells that are like zombie cells that are damaged, got broken proteins, got broken pieces, and they should be killed off, but our body's machinery is not killing them off, and they're hanging around and they're putting out chemokines and cytokines into into the cells around them and actually damaging cells next to them and so on. And so we get more and more of the senescent load, and this is what one of the, 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 the problems of ageing. And by doing this intermittent fasting, I mean, even longer fasting under the guidance of a doctor, if, if that's appropriate for you, um, can be really beneficial in upregulating all the autophagy so that we are getting rid of those senescent cells, re recycling all of that damaged stuff that's doing us, that's literally loading us down, weighing us down, and then clearing that out. It's like taking out the garbage before you bring the new groceries in. I really like that analogy is that if I just keep bringing in the groceries and putting new nutrients in, but the, the, the cell is full of garbage, I can't get anything in. I need to be able to clear out the garbage. And this is where the cycling of yeah, intermittent fasting or even longer fasting and having periods of low carbs. And I, and I love what you said about that. The, you know, if I'm training hard, I'm eating more carbs. If I'm not training hard, I'm, I'm lowering them. And, and unfortunately, with our, our food pyramid, I mean, I think our food pyramid, that our, our health guidelines, which I'm sure in England are no better than here, you know, are just a disastrous, really. You know, like have your canola and your margarine and your low-fat stuff that's got lots of sugar in it and have your grains. And that, that message is definitely outdated. I think, and, you know, the wheat bix scenario, not picking on wheat bix but, you know, like the, the cereals and all of that, we need to understand that 
the grains are not the grains that even then our grandparents had. They're, they are modified, they're changed. They've got a hell of a lot more gluten in them, which causes all sorts of problems, lectins, you know. Um, so I think if we can test it on our gut, test yourself, be an N of one, test how do you feel when you go without breakfast and you do like you an, an intermittent fasting? Because missing, so missing lunch doesn't bring as much benefit as missing breakfast and having a longer period of, of no digestion going on and giving your body an actual chance to, if you, if, if you have the breakfast, but you skip the lunch, that's not going to do it, unfortunately. So it is better to do that intermittent where you, you know, knock off eating six, seven o'clock, whatever it is, and then go through a bit longer, maybe to 11, 12, maybe longer. Um, depending on what you can do and sort of cutting the window down. I don't know how you feel about this, but generally I'm I'm quite relaxed about some days I will have breakfast if I just feel like I need it. I don't tend to yeah. do this regimented or rigidly. It tends to be more yep. of a, a day-by-day thing. You know, if I've not slept well and I'm feeling stressed yep. and that kind of thing, I, I generally, like, I, I probably need to – I feel like I need to eat a bit more, so I will. And, and then once I'm at work, I just try to – like today, I think I had lunch at 11 a.m., but then I didn't eat again properly until I got home at uh, 6 p.m., whereas other days I'll have lunch at 3 p.m. You know, yep. it just it, – it, it just It is really, life. It's life, isn't it? It's it, 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 like not to be stressed about it. And yeah, yeah. That, that, that whole thing about, you know, like I do it when I'm – when I'm training hard, which is infrequent these days, I tend to train daily, but I just don't put the volume in that yeah, I, I like, me. like 45 yeah. minutes a day. So mm. that even if you train hard for 45 minutes, you can't run yourself that hungry, you know, quite often. So, but, but when the, the, we see the opposite problem with athletes that are training hard, which is, and I've written a blog on this in the past about, you know, um, reds, you know, relative energy deficiency in sport. And, you know, so, that's where I come back around to the whole thing about the, one of the damaging messages around intermittent fasting and fat adaptation and all the rest of it is for athletes that are training really hard. They then feel like they want to double down and be fat adapted and intermittently fast. And all, and all of a sudden, then what you yeah, actually and they're undernourished then. <laughs> undernourish yourself and deprive yeah. yourself of energy. So yeah, I hear there's loads of and and your phrase there that you just use is one that i use all the time n of one you just yeah. have to look at the individual situation because what's appropriate for you it, you asked me earlier and we never really got back to it about like salt in the diet how we're we told to take less salt well it's the same as carb as far as i'm concerned it's like if you're not doing a lot and not sweating a lot and not losing a lot of salt you probably your general diet probably contains adequate to excess salt. If you go out and start sweating two, three, four hours a day and doing loads of exercise, you could very quickly go from excessive to deficient. It's the same with carbohydrate. You know, you cannot say that everyone in the population should have 3,000 or 3,500 or 2,500 milligrams of sodium. That is just the most, that's the most ridiculous thing. We don't, we, government doesn't say everyone should wear size eight shoes. Exactly. <laughs> because that, that statistically will fit most, the, the most amount. The average of person. Yeah. It's, not, it's, it's a good it's, analogy. It's rubbish, you know, and so that's again where some of the confusion with all this stuff comes in. It's like, well, the only the only right answer is the one that applies to you, your genetics, your epigenetics, your situation, your Sex, training. Yep, your like hormones. 
you know, women's cycles is another thing where, you know, you'll need carbohydrates at certain times of the month more than you'll need. You'll need more protein at other times of the month. You should be training. There's no nuance on that conversation. I think that's another area that's, you know, sort of neglected women to just train the same all month round and, you know, be done with it. Well, you know, there is nuance to there as well. You know, where yeah. you're, you're going to perform better at this time, you're going to do more trouble to yourself at that time. Um, and and it, it is more complicated and it isn't fitness sound bite and it takes a coach and it takes more effort. But if they're, if you're wanting to be at the top of your game, those are the conversations that you, you should be thinking about and having with yourself and testing it a, a, around that. And I think, yeah, there is a lot of undernourished, you know, and I was probably one of them, often an undernourished athlete and, you know, um, trying to push things to the absolute limit all the time you know yeah we we've got on our website as well as the online sweat test if you go to the the fueling product page we've got a little thing called the quick carb calculator which is just a really quick tool which we try to use with athletes to show them when you're exercising really hard and it is for when you're doing stuff at a at a harder pace than how much carbohydrate you need per hour. So you, you answer some, you know, three questions about the, the type of exercise, the duration of the activity and the relative intensity on a slider. And it will give you a sliding scale of carbohydrate Brilliant. to need per hour. Because again, that's just a useful tool because what we find is that athletes that are doing the longer, harder stuff tend to under calculate what they might need rather the, the amount of conversations that we have which is actually like you should be taking a little bit more rather than a little bit less and then like with the the hydration and the cramping study the feedback we get amazing feedback from some athletes who are like well you know i didn't believe that i should take three gels an hour while i was doing this race or whatever but i've done it now and wow the, you know the difference is like night and day and mm. you just kind of think well yeah that's and and that comes back to the principle of what through our website and what we try to do and if people have if people have like listening to this and thinking that they want to learn more about that stuff we've got a knowledge hub on our website with loads of good blogs in there with you can contact the team and book one-to-one video calls for free with our sports science team to ask these kind of questions because what, what we found is that i don't think there's any other sports nutrition sports fueling company out there that i'm aware of where you can talk one-to-one with the people at the company and but that's such an important part of what we do because of what we've talked about which is like every situation is individual and different and people want individual answers so Mm -hmm. we try and write articles that help you get the context for what you're doing but then we offer this service of one-to-one calls because then you can really drill into your individual questions. And that's, that is just that's, amazing, Andy. That is really that my blows my mind because I know what that, as a business, I know what that requires. That's a huge commitment to your public. You know, that's a huge commitment from you guys. It started during the, the early days of the COVID nineteen pandemic because we were all stuck at home in lockdown. We weren't going to expos and events, and to, and we we sort of said to the team, "Look, what do we miss about doing that?" And someone said, "Well, it's great because we get to talk to athletes and one to one." They said, "Well, let's put it out in an email and say we'll do one to one video calls while the pandemic's happening and everyone's stuck at home." And in the first in the first two weeks, we had seventy calls booked wow. in. We had to get every single person in the team. Yes, I'm going to say, like, you run out of people pretty quick. Yeah, we really out of people. So, and then, and then it just carried on. And then, we, then we just then and over. So over the last eighteen months, two years, we basically just gradually tooled up to 
be able to offer it more widely. And, you know, sometimes it gets busy and people can't book a call for a week or so, but we, we do as many as we can. And it's, it's, it's just a great, and I hope as the business continues to grow, that we're just trying to stay one step ahead of trying to scale that, you know. And try yeah, because that's always the problem, you know, as, as a little business owner too, you know, when we have coaching and that's that, that balance between trying to make enough to survive on and grow and scale and personalization in the mix you know like how do you do that that's the that's the juggling game that's why i'm like wow that's pretty impressive (laughs) that's amazing the the thing these days is there's a lot of tricks you can use because you know automation and um and and sort of building web-based tools is even as simple as when we do these calls we want to make it as quick and simple so for the for the the guy or girl on our team who's sat there doing the call they need to get have a slick booking system so you're not wasting loads of man hours doing the bookings rather yeah. than doing the calls because a computer system can take the bookings and make it all slick and back to back them and everything like that so that we can spend the human time can be sat behind the lens talking dedicated yeah and then yeah. over over and above that we're actually building something at the moment which is kind of called we haven't got a proper name for it but we're calling it the ultimate fueling planner and you would be able to come to the website in a few months you'll be able to put in what event you're doing it will pull the weather conditions for that event. You'll say how fast you're going to go or how many hours it's going to take. We can infer the intensity. We, we can get a few stats about you as an individual. And then it will have essentially spit out the bare bones of a fueling and hydration plan. Now, that's not supposed to be the be all and end all, but it's supposed no, to get right a- there. Structure. And if you can do that, if you do that without talking to a human, then what you can do is take that plan, bring it to a call with one of our people to then do that final mile little bit of tweaking. But then if we can do it that way, then we can help a lot more people a lot more efficiently because all of a sudden what would have been a 35 minute call to start this from scratch becomes a 15 minute call because you've done most of it before you got there. And that's the thing. Those are the sort of ways in which we'll we'll try to try to scale and the yeah. offer. Yeah, wow, that's impressive. That's I can learn something from you, from you guys there because that that is always the struggle as a business, you know, in the spaces, the the, the trade off for personalization versus you know you're a small team and how the heck do you get through so many people and how do you how do you make all that work and uh, yeah, so that's that's oh that's that's absolutely mind blowing. I'm blown away by that. That's really really cool. And I think your knowledge hub is really deep too. Um, and, and you know, it's great when you've got a, a team now that's behind you. And I, I bet when you started out, if we had conversation as two entrepreneurs, um, <laughs> I bet when you started out, it was a bit of a juggling act trying to get everything to <laughs> to work. <laughs> it, it, it still is, and and it is it is testament to the t- fact that we've built we've a team of fifteen full time people now and you know whilst that's big in the scheme of companies it's it's big for us because we and we we, and and without we have got a phenomenal team we've got sports scientists and coaches and um, even behind the scenes we've got phenomenal people that do our logistics and shipping and it and all that sort of stuff and you know it is that's years of work (laughs) it is it's been 10 years of hard hard graft and we're only just getting started but 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 now the 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 mission is to take the core of what we try and do which is essentially you know be a resource for athletes if i i want to build the resource that i wish i'd had 20 years ago because 
if I could have talked to precision fuel and hydration 20 years ago, my athletic career would have been improved significantly as a result. Hell yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's what that's what we're trying to do. And it's only by growing that, you know, growing a team of people who are who are able to, you know, do that brilliantly. Because I've got we've got people in the team now who are significantly better at what they do than I am at any of those mm. one of those things, you know. And so um, as much as I love jumping on one to one video calls with people, we've got some really talented sports scientists who who are absolutely nailing it who are yeah. brilliant and that's really, that's really cool you know that's yep. that's what we as a leader that's what you should do isn't it surround yourself with people who are more brilliant than you are and better than you are at the job <laughs> and then that's you can the just that's lead the them <laughs> that's the and just, yeah and, and you know like we're lucky you know I'm, I'm lucky to be surrounded by some really talented people so they make it happen no, that's brilliant. Hey, Andy, you've been so generous with your time today. I do really appreciate the work you put into your company and the, and the, and the products that you're producing and the depth of your knowledge and the science and having some open, great intellectual debates on, on different issues. I think that's fantastic. I, I love doing that. And I'm sort of going, oh, but what about this? And, you know, have you heard of that? Because uh, I think that that's so important. That's what's needed in today's society is we need this open conversation around these things instead of this is where I'm staking my sand and I will never change. <laughs> because that approach is just not a good one. Um, so, Andy, it, where can people find Precision Fuel and Hydration? Um, and we're going to have links and we're going to have all that sort of in the, in the show notes. But, just, yeah, just let people know. Are you on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that sort of good stuff? Yeah, well? all good stuff. We are um, so precisionfuelandhydration.com or actually if for the shorthanded, it's pfandh.com. You'll find us on that. Our social media is currently, the old company name was at Precision Hydration. So we're still on that, but we will be depending. I'm saying this because I know this might go out in the future. So it might yeah. be at pf and h okay so look up both of those yeah look at both of those you'll find you'll always see for people who are watching the video version you'll see increasingly our like multicolor band is like our little um little tell so you'll see that the the little design feature i would say email into hello at pf and h.com if you've got any questions as i keep going on about the team are incredible and every email gets answered within you know, usually within 24 working hours. So sort of. You know, oh, I must admit, even like preparing for this podcast, your your team sent me over so much to read. It was like, dude, I'm not going to get through all this before I get to the thing. <laughs> it's fantastic. Great to have such a team who is like, and this is what Andy's done. And these are all the things that you should be reading. And this is, here's a hundred photos. And here's, I'm like, Whoa, these guys are onto it, you know? It's brilliant. No, they are. They, they, are. they put me to shame that they are all over it. And we'd love, to, yeah, we'd love to hear from anyone, really. You know, just reach out, get in touch. Whatever platform you'll find is if you search precision fuel and hydration on the web, you'll trip over us and come and say hello. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Andy. I really appreciate your time today. Nice to meet you, Lisa. Cheers. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.